Yeah? Okay. So it's working. Microphone's working? Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yes. All right. Good. All right. Sorry for our technical challenges today. Um, you know, we did go into ID after all and not GI. So um, I have no idea what that means. All right. So welcome, everyone, to the February, right, February. Yeah. It's, it's been a busy few weeks. February AIDS seminar, and we have Drs. Adams and Talbot speaking to us to you today on global MDRTB from basics to bedside, uh, or otherwise, something titled very similar to that. Um, MDRTB is, is the key. Um, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Lisa and Elizabeth. Um, they're well known to uh, most people in the room, both faculty here, been with us for quite a long time. Um, Lisa originally training at uh, getting her medical degree here at Dartmouth, um, and then Elizabeth at uh, Robert Wood Johnson uh, down in New Jersey. I'm not going to go through their training subsequent to that. They're both uh, uh, experienced physicians, uh, are both very experienced in the world of TB. Um, Elizabeth's interests most significantly around TB diagnostics. And uh, Lisa's interest uh, being in TB very generally, TB control. She's uh, done a lot of work uh, consulting in many countries around the world on developing TB uh, control programs. Uh, also a member of the WHO Guidelines Technical Review Panel for Childhood TB. Um, Lisa and Elizabeth are both associate professors here in the medical school. Uh, in addition, uh, Lisa is the Associate Dean of Global Health, while Elizabeth is the uh, state, uh, Deputy State Epidemiologist in the state of New Hampshire, uh, also both carrying a number of other hats. But I'm going to hand off to them to speak to us about, uh, oh, Richard will spank me if I don't do the logistical part, sorry. So um, uh, <clears throat> the speakers have nothing to disclose. Uh, they don't intend to discuss off-label or unapproved use of products or devices. No commercial support for today's activity. And uh, to get nursing credit, people need to stay uh, to hear the majority of the presentation. So if you're here for five minutes and leave and you're a nurse, uh, you don't get any credit for that. I think that was it. Yes, Richard? All right. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I'm very glad to be here with you to talk about this topic I love. We all wear very many hats in our professional world, but this is my favorite hat. Um, and, and I have to say up front that I'm very happy to, to do this with Lisa. It's, it's quite fair that we would share this presentation in that we do a lot of global work together. So she's been my um, favorite partner in crime in many of the grants that we um, have around the world for um, TB control. So this is a very um, timely topic, and, and we made a, a hope not insulting uh, assumption that many of you have an empty toolbox with regards to how you would manage drug-resistant tuberculosis in your professional practice. Um, so we're going to add some tools to it, and um, we're going to be very short of time because, you know what, that's the other good news. There's a lot of new tools out there. There's a lot going on with um, drug-resistant tuberculosis, finally, after so long of waiting. So yeah, I don't know what that is. That's not good. Okay, the worst thing that happens to me is my technology fails me. Ah, here we go. Hey, here's the outline. Fill in the toolbox. We're going to give you an essential vocabulary. Um, those of us in, in tuberculosis are rather pedantic about our 
words and definitions mean, mean exactly that. Um, Drug-resistant TB epidemiology is an important tool for understanding um, how um, patients present and, and from whence they come their risk of MDR-TB. I could not escape without doing diagnostic tools because that's an exciting world. Um, we'll um, shift to let Lisa talk about global treatment approaches. We'll make the distinction between standardized, empiric, and individualized treatment. We'll talk about a new short course uh, MDR-TB treatment regimen and the two new drugs that are out and about. Um, and because of the nature of, of this audience's professional passions, we'll certainly um, include um, something about our um, experience uh, with HIV as well. We have a case, and I can tell now that the 10 minutes we've had in introductions and, and fixing the computer and all are going to probably make that not possible, but we'll see where we get. So here's an essential vocabulary, your first tool. So TB, when, when we say TB, we, we certainly mean active disease, um, not to be confused with latent tuberculosis infection. And we're really talking about the major um, anatomic form of this disease, which is pulmonary. So TB is pulmonary tuberculosis when, uh, for the purpose of this talk. MDR-TB is multidrug-resistant tuberculosis that's resistant to at least isoniazid and rifampin, which are the two most important first-line drugs. Um, we also refer to a form of MDR as XDR, extensively drug-resistant. And the definition now that's commonly accepted is MDR-TB that's also at least resistant to fluoroquinolones and an injectable agent, such as the aminoglycosides and capriomycin. Um, so we refer to new and retreatment TB patients. A new, a new patient, this is kind of intuitive, but it becomes important for some of the epi that follows, is a patient who has not taken TB drugs before. A retreatment patient is a, is a patient who, who has taken drugs and, and therefore might have engendered um, their drug resistance through um, um, maybe um, defaulting from therapy. And uh, I'll let Lisa talk about standardized versus empiric versus individualized during the segment of treatment. But um, in brief, the standardized and empiric treatments are those treatment regimens that are based on local epidemiology or best guesses, whereas individualized MDR-TB treatment is, is around um, the use of lab data to guide um, the, the coherent, the, the logical management of a, of a TB, MDR-TB patient. So I'm craning my neck, and I may step away from the mic in doing so, but um, I also want to make just the first uh, treatment reference around the difference between first line and second line. So first line TB drugs are those that you're uh, commonly familiar, you're, you're familiar with using, and that's isoniazid, rifampin, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. All the other groups of drugs are referred to collectively as second line drugs. So now, how about epidemiology, um, your next tool? Um, I think that uh, the, the CDC data um, is, is helpful to set our stage. It, within the U.S., we, we've observed um, the, the primary drug resistance, in, that is, in a patient who's not tr been treated for TB before, um, it is stable. So we've, we've encountered less than 100 patients with uh, multidrug-resistant TB uh, each year for the last years, as you can see by the bars. Um, the... If you break it up by patients who are U.S.-born and those who are foreign-born, though, you can see that the um, rate of multidrug-resistant TB is almost twice as high uh, among those who are born outside of the U.S. Um, so, you know, the, the CDC poster that always seems so simplistic and kind of silly, you know, if you remember Think TB, okay, that was one that was, like, 
how many degrees did it take to come up with that poster? Um, but the other one is TB anywhere is TB everywhere. And, and this informs a lot of the funding that's going on because um, TB is being imported to places that otherwise feel as though they might be immune from TB, so an MDR-TB. <coughs> Um, in this graphic that comes from the 2013 report from the World Health Organization on the status of global um, tuberculosis control, it's the bottom row to draw your attention to. Um, the estimated uh, number of uh, multidrug-resistant TB cases is about 450,000. It's um, illustrative of this world <laughs> of drug-resistant TB that the range is 300 to 600,000. That's a pretty big range. <laughs> Um, but, but there it is, and then the associated deaths as well. So this means that um, approximately 5% of the global tuberculosis cases are MDR-TB. Um, of course, within Epi, you'll see maps, and, and um, this shows the proportion of MDR-TB among new TB cases, those patients who have not received treatment before. And um, of course, the darker the blue, the worse the scenario around um, MDR-TB, and, and former Soviet Union is particularly um, worrisome with this regard. Um, and also, um, China is emerging as a place where there's a lot of drug-resistant TB, and, and um, there's unfortunately a lot of white countries remaining, that is those who ha have not even had the capacity to test, and we don't know what's going on in places like Laos, for example. This is an analogous graphic around the uh, proportion of drug resistance in those who have had treatment before. Obviously, this would be a huge risk factor for having drug resistance as those who've taken treatment before. And the same areas of the world light up, not a surprise. But some of these um, proportions are, are, are really staggering. More than 50% of patients presenting with MDR-TB in some settings are um, MDR-TB. Um, so what about XDR? Uh, this, this has had a lot of press, and rightfully so. It's um, sometimes considered almost untreatable. And um, I think that there's a couple of take-homes from graphics like this, and that is that any country that is capable of testing will find it. So there's almost 100 countries now that have reported the presence of XDR-TB, and that's also within the US. So we, we have about 10 cases a year in the US, um, uh, or, or less. Some, sometimes it bounces around a bit. Um, so global TB trends in the last decade, global TB in general, not just drug resistance, uh, this, this has been decreasing in each of the six WHO regions of surveillance. So, so that's good news. Um, but uh, if, if you ask, let me preempt your question, what's going on with drug resistant TB in the world? We just don't know because many countries don't have more than one point in drug resistant surveys. Um, or some countries haven't tested at all, as, as referred. So, so we don't know what the trend is. Some settings where the rates are particularly high and have been under uh, intense scrutiny globally, such as in the former Soviet Union, uh, a massive introduction of resources and labs built and, and technologies introduced has shown that in some settings that have more than one point on this graphic, that um, TB is, the MDR-TB is stable. In other settings, it's decreasing, and then in others, it's uh, uh, actually increasing. So um, I think it's a mixed bag, and we're not sure what direction <laughs> it's going, but I think overall, the, the feeling is it's not good. So diagnostic tools, uh, this is my favorite topic, and, and you know this. Um, diagnosing a patient with drug-resistant TB earlier prevents the spread of disease. So it, it goes toward controlling the epidemic. It helps. Um, stop the development of further amplification of resistance. So we're less likely to, to, to drive a patient who has MDR-TB into XDR-TB by treating with maybe only a single effective drug. 
And it reduces the progression to permanent lung damage. There are very many people who are disabled from their encounter with um, tuberculosis. And we'll have higher cure rates the sooner we, we diagnose. Um, yeah, so remember, I don't think I have a pointer. I could, can I walk? Maybe, um, do you remember this range of MDR-TB cases estimated globally three to 600,000? But the number to, to the right uh, represents those who are actually reported, actually identified. So if you um, say there's uh, 300,000 MDR-TB cases, this would translate to less than a quarter being identified and reported to WHO. But if the estimate of how much MDR-TB there is globally is more on the 600,000 range, of course, that percentage is even much lower. So we're, we have massive underreporting of this phenomenon. And um, in, in, within this graphic, showing you countries' uh, or patients' capacity to have even rifampicin and isoniazid drug testing to make a definition of MDR-TB. So um, again, it's, it's split up by each of the six uh, WHO global regions. But you can see in, in the set of graphic on the, the columns on the far right, the global picture is, is really kind of staggering. I mean, just to pause for a moment and imagine that um, less than 10% of both new patients or even retreatment patients have capacity for um, having their isolate tested for isoniazid or rifampin resistance. This is a pretty shocking state of affairs, I think, um, especially for those of us who so depend on that isolate, knowing what our, our isolates, MIC is, et cetera. Um, what about the next step? What if you have a patient globally and you know that they have isoniazid or rifampin resistant? You're already in a small crowd, but can you go on to know whether this patient is susceptible to uh, fluoroquinolones and, and the immunoglycosides? Um, and this, this gets even worse. So again, globally, on the far right, you can see an MDR-TB patient has about a 25% chance of being able to be tested to the full spectrum of drug, sensitive dis uh, drug sensitivities. Um, so it's, it's tough to practice this medicine out and about. Um, so the diagnostics, some of these you'll be familiar with and some not. And, um, the proportion method is the standard. It's the reference standard for, for doing drug sensitivity testing. It's on solid media. It takes a long time. And you can see some of the pros and cons of it. We, we, we just do not have the capacity to do this globally. It's too intensive. And I see you know Wendy here. Anybody who's been in the labs and knows, knows that this takes forever. It takes a lot of expertise. Um, it's sometimes not very well reproducible. So it's been a. Um, a major push globally to uh, extend the benefits of the midget testing. So this is liquid sensitivity testing that is done faster. It requires a little less expertise, um, uh, but but it, it it's um, still pretty heavy with regard to the need for expertise in the laboratory and, and a BSL-3 lab, of which there are not very many in, in uh, developing setting developing country resources settings. There's MODs. I'll just say quickly as another liquid culture. Uh, media method for determining drug sensitivity testing, and that is um, really technical, very difficult to do, but often has some attention um, in places like Peru and, and elsewhere where um, they might have the capacity to, to put it in place in their um, referral centers. But what's really shaken up the drug sensitivity testing and really the diagnostic uh, setting it, it, world is the um, gene expert. So this is that. Um, PCR-based automated system that gives you a result of TB or not TB, rifampin resistance or not rifampin resistance in 90 minutes. It requires very, very little um, training um, sustenance. It just has, you have to have um, 
electricity um, and, and some way of disposing of the little cartridges. This system is very analogous in my mind to, to like the carry coffee system, right? You know, you can buy hazelnut or decaf or whatever. So this is also multi-disease. So you can use it for drug-resistant <laughs> TB. You, you can also buy one for trypanosomiasis or HIV viral load or CD4 count or other uh, C. diff, MRSA. I think those are in use at the hospital right now. So this is a very nice platform that is really transforming um, primary approach to um, TB diagnosis and at least the hint of whether you have MDR-TB by virtue of the fact it gives you rifampin resistance also. But it only gives you rifampin resistance. There, there's hope that it'll be developed further um, toward, toward the other drugs, but um, sometimes it, that's been hard and slow to do, especially to get Cepheid on board with that small market. What I thought I might spend a little more time with you in the little time allotted is, is to talk about the line probe assay. So again, I'm making an assumption that you're aware of how great the, the expert is. Um, but the line probe assay is one that is also getting a lot of global attention toward increasing our capacity to diagnose multidrug resistant TB. So this is um, molecular probes. I'll show you a diagrammatic that might help um, just the mechanics of it. Uh, understanding it. And then um, I would say it's relatively simple. It's not nearly as simple as brewing a cup of coffee with expert, um, but um, it's it's a, a not too expensive. It does require some molecular expertise. So this is definitely one that has pros and cons, but it's very active with regards to World Health Organization recommendations to try to um, uh, improve patients' access to uh, drug sensitivity testing. So here's some graphics. The the Disadvantage you might have noticed on the previous table is that um, to use line probe assay, you either need a culture isolate or you need a smear positive sputum. So a lot of patients don't have either of those. But but if you start from there, then you uh, have to process that specimen. You amplify the DNA using PCR. Um, so you have to have a couple of machines sitting on your desk and some expertise required in that, some space in the laboratory because you have to be set apart to do PCR. You don't want it to be contaminated, that is. Um, and then you use these little strips that have embedded within them probes that show um, wild type and the typical mutations to the major the, the drugs isonizing and rifampin within. And then you you know you put those amplicons on this strip and see where it binds. And it's a colorimetric read. So you you I need to step away from the microphone I think to point out a couple of things. It's a little daunting these these little strips, but this one is showing a control strip. This one is showing rifampin and isonized versus just isonized versus. So to compare these two, and you can see that there's some lines that don't line up. So the RPOD gene predicts rifampin resistance, and you can see that the wild type doesn't bind to that clinical isolate, meaning that there's something different. It's got it's got mutations in it. And then the other next difference in, in that graphic shows that it actually does bind to a mutant strain. So so this gives. Um, and the ability to suggest that this is going to be rifampin resistant. Um, and the next one over extends that concept around isoniazid too. So it's a purchasable kit. It's being rolled out massively. It's also now in use for the second line drugs as well. Um, it's extremely accurate. Um, and, and one thing that's very favorable is you get results in most cases. So 97% had interpretable results, um, whereas Midget has a pretty high rate of contamination globally. So besides the disadvantages of how long Midget takes, about 10% wind up being contaminated in, many, in, in most settings of use. So um, I'll just skip to what the World Health Organization has told us to think about the line probe assay and, and allowed countries to access some of the funding streams. So there, <clears throat> So this, the, the decision to use line probe assay 
to diagnose um, drug-resistant TB should be part of an integrated lab development um, plan and, and should only be used on smear-positive or culture isolates. Um, and, and again, we do have it now for second-line drug testing as well. Um, I think I want to let Lisa talk now about um, treatment issues. So we'll, we'll switch and then come back together in a minute. Thanks. Thank you, Elizabeth. Good afternoon, everyone. So are you driving from this? Okay, great. So I'm going to talk now about um, treatment and hopefully, again, add to your uh, growing toolkit in this area. So you heard the term standardized, empirical, or individualized, and let's actually define those a little bit more deeply and talk about how you would actually use them in, um, in a, approaching a, a, a treatment strategy. So standardized um, treatment, as was mentioned, this is based on um, representative data taken from drug resistance um, surveys that are done uh, in, in the population and um, using that information to create a standardized regimen that's going to be given to every patient that presents in, in by, by category um, in different patient classifications. So that's it, straightforward. That's the regimen that everyone's going to get from beginning till end. There's modifications on that, and that's using a, treatment, a standardized treatment um, regimen followed by individual individualized treatment. So starting everybody on the standardized regimen while you're waiting for um, the individual's um, uh, drug acceptability testing results, and then you can actually tailor the treatment um, to an individualized um, level. And then there's empirical treatment, which is uh, similar in that you are, as was mentioned, doing your best guess. You're, but in this case, you're actually basing your um, best guess regimen on either the patient's treatment history or the treatment of the contact if it's, if it's a child, and then, again, using um, the data from their individual um, DST results to modify the treatment. So standardized treatment um, approaches are generally used in places where DST, drug acceptability data, um, are unreliable or un unavailable. There is a push for making um, DST availability, uh, 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 making DST um, technology available globally, and so the, the latter two are the um, approaches that I think are going to are going to win at the end of the day. So, let's just talk about how to put together a uh, standardized treatment regimen and talk about some general principles in um, treating for uh, MDR-TB. So, in someone who is just MDR-TB, just isomerized rifampin resistance. This, this is uh, ba the basic formula um, that a clinician will follow. So you're going to want to use four second-line drugs that are presumed or, uh, or known to be effective, and PZA, again, if it's known or presumed to be effective. The four drugs that you're going to add to your uh, PZA backbone should include the following. A late-generation fluoroquinolone, ethionamide, one of the injectables, and either cycloserine or PAS. I put in a comment here about the quality of this recommendation. This is a, um, you know, taken from the WHO guidelines. And um, if you note, this is a conditional recommendation based on low quality of evidence. And that's going to be true about almost every recommendation that you're going to see around how MDRTB should be treated, which is just indicative of the dearth of information that we have and data that we have on um, treating MDRTB. So let's actually walk through step by step on building this. Uh, standardized regimen. So there's the first-line drugs listed there. We know that we've lost isoniazid and rifampin. So again, we're going to um, pull PZA into the regimen. Um, ethambutol is also a first-line drug that could be used, however, based on the fact that it's um, 
drug susceptibility testing is not very reliable. It's, it's a weak agent in general. It's never considered sort of the core of um, the treatment regimen. So let's move to the second line, um, injectables now. And um, just a, a note, too, that um, that's the abbreviations there are canamycin, amikacin, and capriomycin. None are considered more effective than, than the others. Um, uh, canamycin and amikacin being um, both aminoglycosides. If there's uh, resistance to one, you're going to lose the other. Uh, fortunately, capriomycin has been shown to be effective when there has been resistance to aminoglycosides. Streptomycin, an injectable that people may know is used to um, treat TB. WHO actually considers that a first-line drug. It's a little can get a little confusing, um, but in general, it's uh, streptomycin is never recommended for MDR-TB treatment. There's just too much. It's been around too long, used too often. And there's too much background resistance out there. So adding on our quinolone again, this is going to this this class is highly effective, well tolerated. You want to take a later generation, so levofloxacin or moxifloxacin if possible, and then um, and compl now complete the regimen with one of the group four drugs. Okay, so ethionamide and cycloserine were the two that we said if they can be tolerated, um, those are the ones that are preferred. Some concerns around um, ethionamide resistance. If the um, INHA mutation, which was just shown on the on the line probe assay strip that um, Elizabeth was showing, maybe some cross resistance if that mutation exists. But in general, um, ethionamide and cycloserine, if tolerated, are going to be the two that are going to be used from this class. And then I put up the group five drugs. These are generally drugs of last resort. They're um, not very effective drugs. Uh, very little data. Um, on them, and so again, they're they're really just uh, the sort of salvage um, treatment drugs. So just going through and applying the principles from my first slide, you can see, um, voila, you have a standardized <coughs> regimen that is the most common standardized regimen that is used, um, and again, just <coughs> easily constructed um, using the the principles and classifications of drugs. So what about duration of MDR-TB treatment? So some new recommendations that I want to share with you, um, suggesting that uh, the intensive phase now um, should be uh, should last eight months. This is an, a change from this previously uh, generally six months uh, intensive phase that, that was applied to MDR-TB patients. Of course, you're always going to base your, um, uh, your duration of therapy based on the patient's response to treatment. Um, and then the continuation phase is uh, 12 months is now what's recommended. Interestingly, there are actually some, some good data that have shown looking at different durations for both the intensive phase and continuation phase show that the benefits that you achieve by going beyond eight months for the intensive phase or beyond 12 months for the continuation phase, the benefits tend to plateau. So the, um, that's why these are the um, current recommendations. That gives you a total duration of about 20 months. Again, still too long. What are the typical outcomes uh, we see in MDR-TB patients? So this is just data taken from the WHO global report shown uh, by region. And in the bottom left, you see the global data. So these are all the treat possible treatment outcomes. So anything that's dark green or light green is, is considered successful treatment, either um, a demonstration of, of cure by bacteriologic grounds or um, that they have completed treatment. And you can see it pretty much hovers around 50%. Um, almost in every region over the last few years. Um, and that's where the, the global data sort of 
pan out. So pretty, pretty distressing, not, not very good outcomes that we would like to see. <clears throat> Part of the reason we know for the poor outcomes surely has to do with the duration of therapy and um, how well it's tolerated. So some, some exciting news um, on the horizon. Every TB controller's, TB provider's dream is to have a shorter course uh, regimen for MDR-TB. And a esteemed group of researchers said, well, in the absence of um, randomized controlled trials for MDR treatment guidelines, and the fact that m many of the uh, recommendations um, are based on expert opinion, we know that treatment is lengthy, poorly tolerated, costly, um, and at best we're getting 50% treatment success. They actually um, put together an observational study conducted in Bangladesh to look at shorter courses of treatment, very close follow-up. So when treatment was discontinued, these patients were followed very closely. 427 patient results were available, and um, they showed higher rates of treatment success, not just standard, not just the 50% level, but higher rates of treatment success um, could be attained using regimens that were 12 months or less. Pretty exciting. However, it must be pointed out that this population was largely HIV negative um, and had no history of prior um, treatment with second-line uh, second drugs. But this is a, a table from the um, study that, uh, that was published. And you can see the, uh, across the top heading the six different regimens that were used. And then I just put the red uh, box around the, the, uh, the treatment completion and, and cure rates. And you can see they're all pretty much over 50%. Um, but look at regimen six in particular. Um, they're achieving rates of should be about 87%, if I remember correctly. I can crane my neck to see it. <laughs> Jason, does that mean that nobody is completing the regimens? I'm sorry? You've got zeros across the completion. Does that mean nobody is actually completing these regimens? I can't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, remember, treatment completion is the category you're assigned to if you can't demonstrate bacteriologic cure. So that's, you want everybody to be cured, ideally, because you want to be able to demonstrate. So, so let me just ask, how, what is the experience with how many people can actually finish 20 months of treatment? I mean, it, as you said, mind-boggling. So can even half the patients comply with a 20-month mm -hmm. regimen? Well, half are complying if that's your treatment success rate. And then the other categories of outcomes include things like interrupting therapy, uh, previously called default, of course, dying, treatment failure, and then transferring care so that they're lost to follow and no treatment outcome is, is achieved. So yes, what we are getting is 50% treatment success rate. That's the, that's the uh, sum of those who, uh, uh, well, it's actually the total who complete treatment, but the, um, a portion of whom uh, you can demonstrate bacteriologic cure, and the others have just completed therapy. But yeah, we're talking about 50%. So, these numbers are very encouraging, right? Now we're seeing maybe, um, and maybe it's in part because of the shorter regimen. Let's look at it a little bit more closely. So you can see actually um, up on the uh, top paragraph, it actually gives you the abbreviation for what the regimen, that regimen six that had the highest um, treatment success rate was. So it's canamycin, clofazamine, gadifloxacin, uh, ethionamide, probably high dose isoniazid pyrazinamide and protheonamide. So a, a very intense regimen. Um, and then the, that for the intensive phase and then the um, continuation phase drugs are listed there. But again, talking about 87% um, 
treatment success rate uh, in, that, in that group of patients. So very encouraging, very promising, but cautiously optimistic. So I think I heard you say that these patients were monitored very intensively in the study. Is that translated into practice? <laughs> I mean, I, th I would think that's where it's going to fall apart. Well, that's always the question, isn't it? And I'll, I'll actually show you some program data um, that was not uh, research study data in a moment. Um, so WHO, I think, is as we all are, is encouraged by these data, but wants to uh, uh, obviously be cautiously optimistic. And so their current recommendation around using these regimens that differ markedly from the ones that are current, uh, the current uh, norm or standard of care, and that may not have undergone the grade review, which is the you know that technical review process that WHO does so painstakingly to evaluate the quality and quantity of evidence and assign um, the recommendations that these should only be used in the context of research and under close monitoring for a period of at least 12 months once they have stopped treatment. So you're going to have a very intensive um, follow-up period, obviously looking for any um, relapses. Um, and then, of course, they raised, too, that there are some regulatory and, of course, ethical issues to, to um, consider here. So I think the main thing is this is not ready for prime time yet, but maybe it's not too far out on the horizon. So let me just um, add a couple new um, MDR-TV drugs to your toolkit. This is Bedaquilin. This is the drug that I'll mention that has been <coughs> FDA approved. Um, it's a diarylquinolone um, and approved at the end of 2002 under this uh, FDA's accelerated approval program, which won't um, feign to understand all the, the uh, FDA regulations, but as I understand it, this is a mechanism that um, allows this drug to be made available to patients who need it while its manufacturer, Johnson & Johnson, conti um, continues to conduct additional studies to, conform, to confirm both um, benefit and safety. But very encouraging data and some 360-odd <laughs> patients from two um, phase two clinical trials show that the time that uh, from sputum conversion, okay, um, so the time that patients who were um, you know, sputum uh, smear culture positive to the time that they converted to a negative culture was brought down from 125 days in the, in the group that didn't receive, that received standard treatment plus placebo to only 83 days in the um, group that received this uh, standard treatment plus this drug, and in another study to 57 days. Um, conversion of sputum culture has been a well-known marker for um, uh, for evidence of how well the drug is going to do and how well and, and um, how well patients are going to do in terms of leading to cure. So this is very encouraging. Um, there are some uh, concerns, of course, the boxed warning there, uh, uh, advising around QT prolongation as being a concern, and then mm -hmm. the standard common side effects, of course. But this, uh, I think, is the first drug approved for MDR-TB in forever. <laughs> yeah, since uh, the first drugs were approved in the, in the 40s and 50s, so this was very exciting news. And we add to that this drug that I'm going to tell you about, but I'm not going to tell you how to use it because it hasn't been approved yet. So I'm not going to recommend any off-label use. Um, this is a drug, um, Delaminid, uh, produced by Otsuka. It is a derivative of that. Uh, <laughs> that class of drugs listed up there, um, shown to be very effective in vitro and in, in vivo against MDR-TB and in a multi-center 
multi-country study showed, um, again, high rates of culture conversion at two months when used at, at two different doses. Um, it seemed to be well tolerated. Uh, the only uh, only uh, adverse events were experienced at the higher doses, but it also has um, the risk of QT prolongation, uh, which again, of course, could be additive um, if, if used with um, bedaquiline, so some, some concerns there. But this is very exciting that there are these two new drugs that are, that are um, one's available, one's we hope is soon to be available. In fact, there's a little bit of a controversy amongst the TB advocacy groups because they're pushing for Otsuka to make this available um, by some similar mechanisms to patients. Right now, it's currently not. Okay. Other things to think about with uh, MDR TB care, of course, um, community-based care. Uh, thinking about how we um, are used to treating TB and, and TB patients is some of this uh, may be um, interesting information that the WHO really recommends the way that um, to treat MDR TB the way in which it's treated in most countries across the world, which is mainly as an ambulatory um, condition and through ambulatory care um, <coughs> rather than uh, based on hospitalization. This has been shown to be more cost effective in terms of um, averting dallies, fewer deaths in the secondary cases that may um, occur. However, it of course requires really careful attention to infection control practices, both in the home setting um, and in the uh, outpatient setting. And then something else that I'm pleased to see is gaining more attention in the um, TB uh, community, TB care community, is thinking about palliative care and supportive care for patients when you have run out of treatment options. This is just a, a, a box a list of um, some of the um, end-of-life supportive measures that WHO recommends, some things to consider here around um, making sure that patients are comfortable in terms of their respiratory status, um, uh, make sure that they're provided appropriate nutritional support, and thinking about providing hospice or hospice-like services for patients. Again, something that I think um, is, is relatively new, but I'm pleased to see is, is getting the attention that it deserves for how to, um, uh, how to approach and treat patients when, uh, when your options for um, cure are no longer there. Okay, this is HIV conference, so I'll talk a little bit now about uh, HIV co-infection with MDR and add some thing, more things to your toolkit. So if HIV and TB have long been referred to as the perfect storm already, just drug-susceptible um, TB and HIV. So I have to say that HIV and MDR-TB must, whoops, must be the more perfect storm. Um, some of the challenges that exist here are uh, delays in diagnosis um, are, are very dangerous here and generally can be fatal. Um, when you're talking about treating both, both diseases now, you're talking about using a dozen to a dozen different drugs. The um, pill burden for patients um, can, can be um, uh, quite burdensome. Uh, the risk for possible drug-drug interactions, fortunately, they seem to be few because um, you're not having to use rifampin in your, you're not able to use rifampin in your uh, TB treatment regimen. Um, but there are still some that exist, and it's, uh, there's a lot that's unknown about, uh, that we don't fully uh, understand about uh, the potential for drug-drug interactions. Um, we do know that HIV patients who are, uh, have MDR-TB or 
XDRTB have unacceptably high mortality rates. <coughs> they tend to die often very swiftly, sometimes even before their diagnosis of drug-resistant TB is confirmed. Um, and we also know that this is presenting a burden to, some, to countries where um, they have high HIV prevalence rates and drug-resistant TB um, uh, is, some, in some cases, potentially outstripping their capacity, which, of course, increases the risk for um, opportunities for improper management and the risk of um, accelerating acquired drug resistance. So some thoughts around using antiretroviral treatment and second-line um, anti-TB drugs. So antiretroviral therapy is recommended for all patients with TB and HIV, regardless of whether it's drug-resistant or not. <clears throat> so of course it's recommended in patients with drug-resistant TB. And that is true irrespective of CD4 counts. And the um, data are now showing certainly that starting earlier uh, is as early as possible is best within the two to eight week time frame um, after the patient has started their and, and is tolerating their TB treatment. Um, some international guidelines on recommending some um, antiretroviral uh, regimens that may or may not apply to our setting here in the US. Um, of course, uh, using cotrimoxazole is always important. Um, the good news is that the treatment approaches and uh, principles are essentially the same uh, for um, HIV uninfected and HIV infected pa patients. Um, Again, adverse events we know are going to be more common. That's the, that's the bad news, that there can be overlapping toxicities. Um, so you can expect your patients to have more trouble with taking both regimens. Um, as I uh, mentioned earlier, there's little known about the drug-drug interactions. I've listed a few that are known and have been documented here, but they're using, they involve drugs that were, um, are being less frequently used now, so they're almost more relevant. And uh, more information, of course, is being gathered about um, as we gain experience with treating MDR, TB, and HIV-infected patients, we're gathering more information. And then, of course, we can't forget iris, um, immune reconstitution um, syndrome. And the, um, this, of course, has been documented in patients with TB and HIV, and, of course, MDR, TB, often well uh, treated with uh, anti-inflammatories, either non-steroidal or steroidal drugs. Um, and the good news is that it, it um, is rarely fatal and can be managed. So just some uh, tables here, uh, graphs here to show um, both treatment success and death rates uh, in comparing HIV positive to HIV negatives, and this is for drug susceptible TB. So you see on the left, the treatment success rates are, are they are similar. They're sort of in the same ballpark, a little mm -hmm. bit lower for the HIV positives as, as um, shown in the red, by the red bars. Um, but, of course, the, the main difference is shown in the death rates. Um, part of the reason, a large part of that reason, is that this is all-cause mortality, so HIV patients are dying not just of their TB but of other things as well, but that's where the, the, um, the stark difference occurs. So now if we look just at MDR-TB um, outcomes in patients with um, HIV, comparing patients with HIV to patients without HIV, that's shown in this uh, uh, table here from a study that was conducted in South Africa. And when you look at the um, HIV positive, uh, again, you're seeing, uh, or let me start with the HIV negative, that middle column, you're, you see about the, the rate that we've been talking about, about 50% are successfully treated. And in the HIV positives, um, it drops 
um, some went to 40%. But the really, I, I think, um, promising data is when you are um, treating patients in very careful programmatic, not research settings. And these are data that come out of um, Partners in Health's work in Lesotho. And um, I think you can see here, I put the box around, again, the, the cured and treatment completed categories. And you can see between HIV negative and HIV positive, the HIV positives actually even have a slightly higher treatment success rate, um, approaching 65%. So this may be your best programmatic scenario. 65%, 70% is, um, I think, what Partners in Health is, has been able to achieve. Remember, it's, it's a very um, intensive, case management intensive um, program that they use, that, um, and it's very community-based, relying heavily on, on an extensive network of community health workers um, that really accompany their patients through um, through care and treatment. I'm sorry, Lisa, I missed if that was the standard regimen or the um, shorter course regimen that they used. That's the standard. Um, expect that patients with um, HIV and MDRTD are going to have side effects, and you're going to return to tables like this to help you figure out based on what the side effect is, what drug might be causing it, and what to do about it. And this is just one small portion that I could fit on the slide of, of a multi-page table um, uh, as, that exists as a resource for managing adverse events in patients being treated for both. I do have to give a nod to um, MDRTB in children. Uh, I think uh, many um, in the audience know that it's much more difficult in general to diagnose TB in children. They tend to have um, postibacillary disease, not able to produce sputum specimens, making it uh, the diagnosis much more challenging. When you're concerned about MDR-TB in a child, this is a situation where you want to be as aggressive as is reasonable in trying to obtain a sputum sample using gastric lavage, um, sputum induction. Uh, this is where it is particularly important. Um, without drug susceptibility testing, um, it can lead to inadequate um, treatment. The contact history is going to be particularly important in, in, um, in uh, treating children. Uh, most of their, almost all the resistance um, in children is primary. They're almost always infected by someone in their household. So finding that source case and many times basing the empiric therapy on that source cases, um, DST results is what is, is what is done if you can't get a specimen from the child. Um, again, following the same principles in, in um, constructing your uh, standard regimen for, for children, uh, keeping in mind, too, that treatment of children is complicated by the fact that there's very few um, child-friendly formulations, so there may be pill splitting or other manipulations of the medications to be able to achieve the, the doses that you're after. Um, and of course, remembering to uh, always uh, adjust doses as children gain weight and grow. <clears throat> And again, good news is that the outcomes for children with um, MDR-TB and, uh, and HIV actually tend to be as good or better uh, than amongst adults. And again, some data from the Partners in Health program in Lesotho. It's a small, it's a small cohort, but 17 out of 19 patients were able to be um, successfully treated using um, the empiric therapy regimens. Okay. Now, we, I think we have to, we have a branch point here. We can decide to take questions or launch into the case, which is probably more than seven minutes. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious if people have any questions. Yeah, I would certainly like to hear that. 
Could you comment on the uh, synergy testing and sort of the checkerboard in vitro data supporting the MDR regimens and what's known in vitro about the antagonism or synergy with the second log regimens? Whether there's antagonism or second line drugs, there weren't any strong recommendations or, or data that I saw coming out of the, the um, first vaccine testing. They were concerned, and, and actually this was probably in vivo testing, but they were concerned too about other confounders affecting mortality. There was concern, um, concerns around using ethambutol and chloroquine in two different um, reports that I was reading it, uh, but they said they couldn't separate that out from other confounding factors. So, the left kind of saying we can't make any recommendations here, but I um, don't recall it seeing anything around in, in vitro. Uh, it's been shown to be uh, really bactericidal in the first two weeks of therapy, but after that, it actually looks as though there may be some situation in, a, in an area that has a high incidence with reinfection. When you go through a treatment protocol, is, uh, is it good for what, three months or something like that? Or are you likely to have uh, reinfection by different strain uh, even more rapidly? Well, there's certainly, certainly now from you know, the article um, we that people do get reinfected in settings where there is individual drugs at this point or yeah. Yeah, they are um, and it's it's 
it can still work in difficult formulations and things. Those combination yeah. happens for the first line drugs, and they got it wrong, and then they got it wrong for kids. So we're still fixing that. Um, so I think it, you know, it, it may be a while before we see co-formulations for second line, especially since when you're talking about individualizing regimens, um, that, that can be that can make it a challenge. But yes, I, I always think too when we think about you know places where there is a heavy burden, like South Africa, we're saying, but to trying to do this very well is going to be costly and <coughs> what's our alternative. Um, just to be to use the example that many of you are familiar with the Robert Hayes, um years about it imperative that I thought through this the PEPFAR goals was, was to appropriately treat or probably attempt to diagnose patients who are retreatment patients because those are going to have a higher risk of resistant TB, right? So with very little effort, we were able to identify 10 MDRTB patients um, just by prioritizing those who were returning for treatment. And um, I, I'm worried about my hands, coming along, as you mentioned, which which may make life much simpler yeah. and more I visible. For someone who's practicing uh, or focusing on pregnant women and children, my toolbox is still pretty light. So we didn't no intention of ending on that. Right. It's a great time to be involved with new drugs and new diagnostics. So really, our patient centers. We're not waiting eight weeks for the results to come back anymore. That's the way it should be. We have a conclusion slide just to pull it all together and so, you know, the burden is formidable. We, we all feel that. It's, it's a little scary to let yourself think about what this means for effective programmatic treatment. Um, it's, it's unethical. It's, it's inappropriate. It's untenable how poor access is to diagnosis for this potentially fatal disease, of course, and the public health risk therein. Um, I guess treatment, yeah, is complicated and it's less effective. But uh, maybe shorter regimens on the horizon with these new drugs. 